Thanks for listening to this podcast from Christ Church of Orinoco. Our hope is that it would help you discover completeness in Jesus. Now for this week's teaching. All right, y'all. Well, we will go ahead and get started. Jumping into chapter 3 tonight. Uh, one quick thing. Who in, the, in here um, has this book already? Raise your hand if you have this book already. Raise your hand if you, were like, if you just would really love to have this book. You would read it, but you just, don't, you, just, you just don't want to pay for it. But you would read it if you had it. Anybody? Because I'm going to give one away. I'm going to give this one away. <laughs> yeah? Okay. Yeah, you want it? Just a reminder, these are in the, uh, those are in the resource center. Those are in the resource center. If you do want one, it's just a helpful guide. Uh, one guy's opinion on the book. Um, I think it is a helpful one. Um, it has some good application and stuff within it. So check that out. Um, what I want to do tonight is just kind of give you, go over a recap a little bit from what we talked about last week. And then also do some questions because I had to rush through so much of the best part of that chapter. Uh, I won't, and, I, and there may be questions too that I, that I defer um, just simply because I think a lot of the questions may even end up being answered when we get to chapter 7. Uh, because we kind of revisit the kingdoms again in that capacity. So, but I do want to try to answer a few. So we'll, we'll kind of get there after I, after I recap a little bit. But more, most importantly, I want to pray. So I want to pray for us tonight and then uh, we can jump in. So let's pray. Father God, I am just so thankful for you, for your word. And Lord, uh, the truth is, God, that I may not understand every part. God, we may not understand every part of what it is you have to say, Father, but you give us enough. And we pray, God, that as we begin to listen to you tonight, Father, uh, that you would speak in a way that would give us the wisdom uh, to, to know how to, how to best uh, be available and be present um, within your presence, Father, but also just within the world as you call us to work for you, God, as you call us to, to allow our, our lives to become testimonies and ambassadors of, of your love. And Father, we pray that we would continue to be reminded of the fact that you're in control, that you're sovereign, that you're good, that you're faithful, that you're patient, that you're wise, and that you're powerful. Lord, I pray that the Holy Spirit would uh, speak tonight through me and more importantly, God, that it would just soften all of our hearts as we begin to, to dive into to your word of truth. Father, we love you, and it's in your Son's name, Jesus, that we pray through the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right. So, a little recap. <clears throat> oh, actually, before I do the recap, I'm going to tell you what this is. So, the handout that you got, uh, Song of the Three Young Men, the Prayer of Azariah and the Furnace, and the Song of the Three Jews. This is a prayer, this is uh, basically a prayer and a song that is included in the Catholic Bible. So, if in the book of Daniel. So, if you had um, this, specifically this version is the Revised Standard Version. If you had that Bible um, and the Catholic, part, the Catholic edition to it, you would have this as a part of the book of Daniel. And so you may ask yourself, well, why isn't it included in our book of Daniel? Um, the reason is because this is from what we call the Apocrypha, what, what we've labeled the Apocrypha. The, it includes several books, but um, to make it simple, um, essentially 
This isn't in our earliest manuscripts that we have of the book of Daniel. And so within our, our Bibles, we uh, really the Protestant tradition hasn't included it. Because, simply because, because it's not in those earliest manuscripts, we think that it was probably added later. So, what that means is that it wasn't, we don't consider it to be inspired or authoritative. Okay? But, what it is, is it's still a historical document. This is still a document that was written, as far as we know, uh, within the 1st, 2nd century B.C., it was included in the Septuagint. If you know what the Septuagint is, it's a, essentially it's a Greek version of the Hebrew Old Testament. They made a Greek version of it. And this is in there. Um, so, the point is, um, what I wanted you to have to see this is, regardless of whether it was actually written by Daniel or not, we don't think it was, um, but it is still meaningful. It's still a historical document in the sense that we can gain some truth from it. But more than that, I think it actually gives us a little bit of an ear toward people who were reading this book. Whoever added it, um, this was their, I would say, almost a reflection of what they began to see and feel as they saw, as they read through this book. And so it's just kind of an interesting thing. Uh, Think of it not as um, something that is full of errors, because at the end of the day, there Every other historical document that we have is probably some kind of what we would say is, is has errors in it to some capacity, but it's still useful, right? Uh, they, we have scripts and speeches of Abraham Lincoln, and and we you know we go back further to historians like Herodotus and Josephus and uh, Tacitus and these his, these old historians that tell us things, and they may not be infallible, they may not be authoritative, but they're still helpful. And what this does is it gives us kind of a glimpse into the people's life who may have read this book and really needed it. And they wrote these prayers because they identified so, so closely with this book uh, that they felt as though um, this could be a blessing to those who may read it. And so um, it's helpful. It's helpful. I just, want to, I just wanted to give it to you again. What I give to you is mostly extra resources that could be um, helpful. And really, there's actually even more. And I'll kind of add these in as well. There's actually even more books that we have from the Apocrypha and the Pseudepigrapha that, um, that people, that people some, that some other books of the Catholic Church accepts as well as authoritative, uh, that are part of Daniel. That actually, you know, the book of Daniel goes to chapter 12. And, but we actually, there's another additional chapter that's, again, it's not in the earliest manuscripts, so we don't include it, uh, but that the Catholic Church does include it. So little things like that that I'm going to have that you guys can just kind of see um, that's just interesting. It's just interesting. So, yeah. All right. So, recap. Last week, talked about Nebuchadnezzar and his dream. Nebuchadnezzar and his dream. So, chapter 2, we kind of looked at the fact that he was frightened and so frightened, so shaken by this dream that he demanded that the person not only tell him the interpretation, but actually tell him the dream uh, as well. He would not tell anybody the dream. He wanted them to tell him the dream and then its interpretation to know for sure whether it was valid or not, their interpretation was valid. And he invited the magicians, the sorcerers, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, the astrologers, and nobody could do it. And he put out a decree to put them all to death. But ultimately, Daniel finds out about this decree. And he's like, give me some time. Uh, and him and his buddies, they go before God. They pray. And God answers their prayer. Now, this whole thing, I, I want us to remember this chapter fairly well. Because what I think we're beginning to see in chapter 3 is almost a reenactment of what happened in chapter 2. But in a different capacity. Whereas chapter 2 focused on the wisdom of God. Chapter 3 will focus on His power. 
Okay? So keep those things in mind. We're going to see some parallels as we go through it. So Daniel goes to Nebuchadnezzar, and he begins to explain to him the dream. It's a statue. It's made out of precious golds, and yet those precious golds are different for different parts of the body. And ultimately, he names five kingdoms. Four are represented by the statue. The last one is represented by what he calls a stone that no human hand had cut out. And yet what that stone does is it demolishes every other kingdom and it becomes a mountain. And this mountain, what we begin to see is the kingdom of God. And the other kingdom that that Daniel mentions is Nebuchadnezzar's. He doesn't tell us what the other ones are. And at the, end of the, at the end of the interpretation, essentially, Nebuchadnezzar bows, right? What did we say? The most powerful pagan in the empire bowed to a Jewish exiled servant. Wow. The wisdom of God, the wisdom of God triumphed. Tonight, we're going to see how the power of God triumphs, okay? So, before we jump in, I, do, I, want, to, I want to spend a little bit of time, if you guys have any questions about chapter 2, um, that, that I can answer or try to answer or attempt to. Um, and then, like I said, there may be some that, we're, that I say, let's come back to that because chapter 7 is going to help explain it. And if I explain it all now, then I will have explained chapter 7 and then we won't have anything to study when we get to chapter 7. Okay? So, um, but what, what questions do you guys have about that since we didn't get a chance to, to go into that? None? You guys are good? Alright guys, that's cool. We'll wait till chapter 7. I'm cool with that. Trust me, you will when we get to chapter 7. So, Alright, well let's jump into chapter 3 then. Alright, I'm going to read for us chapter 3, verse 1 through 7. And somebody asked me what version I was reading. So just to let everybody know, I'm reading the ESV version. Uh, which is not necessarily better than anybody else's. But just, it's the kind, it's the Bible that I liked the way how it looked the best. And so I got it, okay? Um, All right, so, I mean, the ESV is a good translation too, but, you know. Let's read 1 through 7. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, whose height was 60 cubits, and its breadth 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura, in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices and the magistrates and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore... As soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. All right, let's talk about this a little bit. So a couple things. Uh, We don't really know how much time has elapsed since... Chapter 2 to chapter 3. Uh, we, don't, we don't really know that. But apparently it's enough 
that Nebuchadnezzar has forgotten about the Israelite God. Okay, Because when he finds out that there are a couple guys who haven't bowed to this image, he's not very happy about it. And he doesn't really believe much in this God. Uh, and we'll kind of come to that. Um, so we don't really know how much time has elapsed. Verse 1 makes some interesting, kind of gives us an interesting picture though. Uh, we start to see, uh, notice that word gold that is used. It's the same word, obviously, that was used in the chapter before when we're talking about the head of the statue. So some people think that what Nebuchadnezzar did was say, Wow, that's me? I'm the head? I'm the head of gold? I'm going to make a statue now, just so everyone can worship it. But we don't know what the statue looked like. We don't know whether it was a, an image of him, whether it was an image of another god, or whether it was just a shape. You know, We don't really know, but let's talk about the shape of this thing. Again, we kind of talked about the fact that um, when Manasseh, right, he was a king within Israel, I think 2 Kings 24, we kind of talked about the fact that he was so evil. He sacrificed his sons and daughters into the fire. He set up uh, all of these places for idol worship. He set up an Asherah pole within the temple of God. And what some people believe, what some scholars believe, is that Asherah pole is a grotesque shape, right? That it's a, it's a grotesque shape. Well, I want you to imagine, not too much, this new statue that is the dimensions of it. So, first off, uh, if, if we're saying that it's 60 cubits high and 6 cubits wide, uh, a cubit is 18 um, centimeters, okay? Uh, or inches, I'm sorry. Uh, 18 inches. And so, this statue would have been 90 feet tall. 90 feet tall. 9 feet wide. 9 feet wide. Okay, 90 feet tall. So this ceiling above you right now is 27 feet high. So multiply that by about three-ish, right? And then nine feet wide, which is maybe, I don't know how, tall, how wide these tables are, but maybe two of them. That's a guess. Interesting. Okay, first off, how did this thing stand? Well, we don't know a lot about this statue, right? It's never been discovered in, in, in its form in any shape. Uh, but uh, what we do know is there's a, an archaeologist by the name of Opper. His last name's Opper. And he has found a mound near, um, near Babylon. And it's called Talol Dura. Mounds of Dura, and that's where you know we, what we're told in, in scripture is, is the plains of Dura. This is a very you know flat flat area where a statue like this could rest. But he said in the mounds of Dura, and when they are doing their archaeological digs, they found a gigantic rectangular structure that was about forty five feet uh, wide and twenty five feet high. So what we believe is that this might have been the base. This actually might have been the base of this structure uh, because it would have needed a base to be able to, to hold itself. And we know that this probably would have been around the area where it probably would have been um, when it was built. So we don't know is whether this base was added into the actual figure of the height itself, right? Because if it's 25 feet high, you know, that could account for um, a pretty good chunk of it. But we don't know. So, but interesting, interesting thing. Now, what's also interesting that I want to point out is the cubits. Notice that it was sixty cubits and six cubits, and both of those have the word have the number six in them, right? Um, so, what the Babylonians did, uh, we kind of talked about how amazing they were at astro- uh, astronomy and uh, and how that carried over into their astrology, right? Well, they were also really good at math. I mean. A lot, lots of places. I mean, the Egyptians we know were really good at math as well. But the system that the Babylonians used was one called the sexagismal system, and it's based off of this number six. 
And it's because this number six can go into so many things. And so if you look at the base number of 60, um, it can be multiplied by 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 12, 15, 20, 30, and 60. That's a lot of multiples, right? And in addition to that, what begins to happen is we, um, they start kind of measuring things based off of this. So if you think of a clock, right, it has increments of 15, um, and what they do is they do a ton of their math based off of this. So the circle, 360 degrees. Um, a year is close to 360 days. So we begin to see kind of how their math is shaping all these things. Uh, what they probably were doing was using these, these, these numbers that they were very familiar with and that they were able to use for their um, calculations to ultimately import them into, um, into the statue. Now, an additional thing, this is my own speculation, okay? My own speculation. I wonder if when we get to the book of Revelation, uh, when we start to begin to talk about the number of the beast, um, you know, we're talking about Babylon being this beast, if that number 666 isn't actually just representation of this, of a, really a reminder to the people who are reading the book of Revelation, um, what it is they're associating that number with, where it's not so much as this literal number that is going to be on people's foreheads, but instead they're getting the symbolic representation of looking back at this empire and the numbers that they would have used to symbolize um, kind of what that is. Again, because when the book of Revelation is being written, it's talking about Rome, but it's using the empire of Babylon, which has been far gone at this point, to represent so many of the things that Rome is now doing. Um, Again, that's my speculation, but there you go. Going forward from there, again, you know, it's, uh, I think part of the interesting thing about has, as we look at even the people that were invited to the ceremony, is that it was all of the most important people, right? If you go through the list, the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, these weren't just common folk. This is all of the best people, and not just from the capital of Babylon, but it says from all the provinces. I mean, these are people coming from all over to behold this statue and, and bow to it, worship it. And what's interesting is that throughout the story, we're going to notice that Daniel's not mentioned. And we don't know why. Um, you know, I've, the, out of the research that I've done is nobody really has a great explanation. Everybody has theories, right? But Daniel doesn't say why in this text, and we don't really know why he's not included in it. All we know is that he's the one telling the story of his three friends and their experience within it. So whether he had to hold down the fort, you know, at, um, at the palace or whatever, or whether, you know, uh, he was off doing something else, we don't, we don't really know. We don't know why he wasn't included in that. Uh, But an interesting fact nonetheless, all the peoples, all of these important people were gathered together for this ceremony. And what uh, verse 4 begins to tell us is that it's all the, all the peoples, all the nations, all the languages. These are, these are the basically going to be commanded to worship, to bow down to this image. And if they don't, they'll be thrown into the furnace. Okay. So most people believe that this furnace was big. It had to have been big and perhaps even was what helped create the, the, the statue, to, or the idol to be worshipped to begin with. Uh, that they believe that it most likely, um, I mean, the furnaces in general um, were used to create, you know, building materials and things for, for war and all that stuff. But, uh, but in addition to that, they could also be used for criminals. Uh, in fact, Jeremiah mentions this, uh, that there, have been, there were two false prophets that ended up being burned in the fire of Nebuchadnezzar. Um, and God allowed that to happen because of their false proclamations. Um, and so, in general, it wasn't an uncommon, uncommon thing for criminals to be burned in a fire. But uh, what we have is now, we're looking at this furnace, and, and Nebuchadnezzar is essentially saying, if you don't bow down, 
you will be burned. You know, you'll be killed through the fire. And so, when we get to uh, verse 7, what does he say? Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trick, and the harp, the bagpipe, every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image. We don't know exactly what these instruments were making. You know, they could have been creating a song, a symphony of sorts. They could have just been making the loudest noise ever. But either way, what they were doing is they were signaling for every single person there to bow and to worship. Now, I get to be the worship leader at this church, so I have to talk about worship a little bit. All right, I have to develop this theology. Let me just get a show of hands, okay, for you. When thinking about worship... Do you believe that they could have... Well, let me phrase this in a different way. They could have bowed to this structure, okay? They could have bowed to this structure. And it could have been something that had nothing to do with what, where their heart's allegiance truly was. That they could have bowed to it knowing that they could have been safe, they wouldn't have to worry about it, knowing that like, it wasn't actually true, right? But they didn't. And I think that, that one of the common misconceptions about our worship is that we can be, you know, we kind of talked about this a while ago. I don't know if, how many of you guys were here when we like, had the lights on like this that Sunday morning and made everyone feel super awkward? You guys here for that? So you're like, I was here for that. I did not like that. <laughs> um, what the point is, what we're trying to do is just kind of Make it make the room feel so different that we just pay attention to things that we hadn't before. You know, I kind of gave the, even the illustration of when you're driving to work, you stop thinking about the turns you're making. You just you just go there until all of a sudden the the road's blocked and you have to go a different way. And now your mind's attuned to everything that you're seeing and experiencing. And that's kind of what we try to do in here because what we've been called to do is to participate, to actually demonstrate our allegiance to God, and what. Daniel's making a really important part of in terms of this idea of worship is that regardless of whether their hearts were aligned with what they believed about this statue, their actions demonstrated it to every single person around them. Their actions demonstrated it. And this needs to be helpful for us as we begin to really analyze ourselves. When we worship God, do we look like worshipers? Do we look like worshipers? When we go throughout our daily life, and and let me clarify too, because I think that a common misconception is worship is music, right? And let me just say, worship, music is worship. Music is a part of worship, which is kind of funny that even within this time, people are still using music, uh, you know, to, to do something for people's pathos, their emotions, and the ways in which they engaged uh, with this statue. Right at the end of the message, you know? But the point is that the worship is not just reduced to music. Music is simply a, a, a part of how people um, give glory to God in a specific way. They say prayers. They say, they say the truth about God in a unified fashion, right? But worship, Romans 12 says this, that ultimately it's how we live our lives. Every single moment of every single day, where we give our allegiance to. And when we begin to place our worship even just the demonstration, the things that we do, whether we really believe it or not, when we start to do things that ultimately signal to the people around us that the God that we serve is not truly the, the, the God Yahweh, that it is meaningful. 
And we have to begin to actually analyze our life in a way that begins to measure, are we really showing people the God that we worship? Are we rejecting the things that when people see us, they would say, that's not a Christian. That's not, that's not a follower of Yahweh. That's not a follower of Jesus. Are we allowing ourselves to bow too easily to the images that have become set up before us? Now, what's interesting is that those images are so different for us now. We don't have these gigantic idols that we're bowing before. And I was actually, um, you know, how many of you guys have taken the personality test? Raise your hand if you've taken the personality test. Any personality test? Yeah? How many of you have taken the color code? Taken the color code? So that's a pretty popular one that our church believes in. And how it works is this. It begins to see what motivates you. And it determines your color uh, or your personality type, the major dominant focus based off of what motivates you. And so it's actually, if you notice that there's a, it's on your little uh, triangular advertisement in the middle there of the different things we got going on at Christ Church. And it's really, it's a helpful thing. You should check it out. I mean, it's helpful to know your personality, to see what's motivating you. It helps you begin to communicate, especially with your spouse. Because when you begin to see what motivates them, you can actually start serving them in the way that they need instead of the way that you thought they should be served, which is really helpful. I can tell you that right now. Um, but the point is, you can begin to see what, what ultimately is drawing you in. So let me give you a little brief overview. The red is, means you're motivated by power. If you're, if you're the red personality, it means you're motivated by power or leadership. I actually like to characterize it as you're motivated by progress. Um, I'm a red personally. That's my dominant. I'm a red. I'm a quiet red, but I am a red because I'm motivated by progress. Um, the yellow is motivated by fun. So all you people who have FOMO, fear of missing out, I don't know if you guys have heard of that. Uh, all you guys who are like, I have to be there with the party, you're yellows, okay? You're motivated by fun. Uh, white is motivated by peace. So everybody who's like, I do not like confrontation, I will run the other way when that happens. Or especially for those of you who are like, maybe I'm a little passive aggressive, but it's because I just don't want to confront it head on, you know? That's scary. All right, so uh, blue is motivated by relationships. Um, and so what you are most motivated by is just like being with somebody, you know, and really all of that, all of that, that would entail in terms of even just the communication and the ways you might be a more, more sensitive to the things that you can say to that person to, to uplift them or even that you're actually hearing from them as well. So they're all great and everybody has different parts of them. All right. Now, what I hate about personality tests, I will confess that I get irritated sometimes with them because they reduce you to these things. And if you're a red, I've heard that's like a pretty common thing, which makes it even worse because now I'm fitting into the stereotype that is on my personality. But I tend to just not like them because they just reduce you to a certain, you know, you feel like you're in a box. But the reality is we all kind of possess these different motivations and some of us are motivated by different things. There are some of you sitting in this room right now who are motivated by progress like myself or power in the sense that you like to just get things done or you like to, um, you like to move forward in a, in a business. You want to continue to, to grow it or you want to allow yourself to be seen uh, with a certain type of status uh, and that's going to be something that motivates you. Whereas a blue, they're going to be motivated by relationships, which means that the easiest thing for them is they're going to begin to exalt their relationships with people above everything else. They're going to begin to allow um, really the, the dynamic of, of, their, of their, either their family or their friends or things like that to, to sometimes eclipse that which should only be reserved for God. 
And if you're white, then uh, you're going to have the motivation of peace. But at, that, at times, what that means is you aren't going, you are going to um, highlight the maybe, well, what, what tends to happen, I, I feel like with the, my friends who are white, is that they're not motivated to do much of anything because of what it may, be caused, what it may cause other people to do. And so they can kind of get in a rut. Again, these are the major motivations. We all have the, these types. I'm like a red, white, blue or something like that, I think. But 4% yellow, so I don't like fun, apparently. Um, so then the, what did, I, what did I miss? Blue, white, red, yellow, I think I got them all. The point is that if you know who you are, if you know what motivates you, you can begin to see the things that you start to worship. Whether it's status, whether it's acceptance, blues. Acceptance is a big thing. You want to be accepted. Whether, you know, whether it's uh, money, security, control, whites, sometimes that's hard when you don't, you're not in control as much as you want to be and, and it's so hard to you know, just be in a comfortable place. You know? uh, red, right? Or is that status? And, uh, let's see, blue, yellow, yellow. Uh, insecurity, you're going to struggle with the insecurity. You're going to struggle with these things, the, these motivations to wonder, like, are you fitting in enough, you know? Uh, and really, they kind of all, again, we all struggle with these to different capacities. But the point is that the more that you can know what motivates you, you might be able to cut off those places that tempt you to worship. Because what we do is we can, we can begin to worship things in our life that simply will never truly satisfy the deepest desires of our heart. We kind of talked about this you know, at the beginning. If you looked into the mirror, what would you see? The deepest desire of your heart, if you looked into the mirror, what do you daydream about? What do you think about? And as you begin to see these things, you can begin to see, am I demonstrating? Not am I, am I, do I look like, do I talk to the people all the time about this? But does my life actually demonstrate that I take my work way too seriously? I spend way too many hours at work trying to prove myself, trying to get myself to the next position. Do I spend way too much time about what I look like? So that I'm accepted by people. That I, I get a, I just, I'm on social media all the time. Do I spend too much time making sure that I have enough money in my bank account or in my savings? Do I spend too much time worrying about even other people and the things that they're dealing with and even judging them or gossiping about them in a way because it actually makes me feel a little bit more secure with myself? I mean, these are things that we have to confront. But not in the sense that it's so vivid as to say we're bowing down before a statue. But as to say, are we actually demonstrating before the world things that ultimately show our allegiance to the only God that truly exists? To the only God that truly exists. Worship. Worship is an important part and is every part of our lives. We all worship something. And it's not just one thing all the time. It's kind of a spectrum. It's kind of we're, we're swaying in and out of our worship. But we always begin to place something above God at times in our life. And the more that we can begin to self-assess ourselves and to see what our natural temptations to do, our natural inclinations, we can begin heading those off to develop a boldness that ultimately becomes like these men who will say, I will not worship this God. I will inconvenience myself. I will put myself in an uncomfortable position simply for the sake of not only myself, not caving into the temptation, but so every single person around me knows who my God is that there would, they would see a difference. Do you look like a worshiper of the one true God? Do you look like a worshiper? Not just outside, but even in here. Are you engaging? Are you singing? Or is the fear of the people around you 
beginning to creep in. The uncomfortability of it all. Do we look like worshipers? Okay. So, questions about this first section. Sweet. All right. Well, this chapter is kind of straightforward. So, all right. Let's go to chapter uh, verse eight. We'll read to eighteen. Okay. It says, therefore, at the time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. I'm going to pause right there. Who has something different than Chaldeans? Anybody? A couple people? We kind of talked about that, right? Sometimes that's um, astrologers are put there or Babylonians. Um, again, with the, what's happening is they're making an interpretation of that word, at least in some capacity, about the operation. Uh, what, what most of my research ha- has said is that these were probably uh, astrologers uh, that were ultimately coming before the king and tattling on these guys because of the fame that they were developing, the expertise that they had within this field. They thought that this might be a way that they could get rid of them. Um, That's a possibility. We don't know why their motive, because Daniel doesn't exactly tell us, but perhaps we can infer that. So verse 9, They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trick, and the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God? who will deliver you out of my hands. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, but if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. So, again, these Chaldeans come, they accuse uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego of not bowing before this image, and in fact, they hadn't. And they begin to, uh, King Nebuchadnezzar finds out and all of a sudden breaks out into a rage. So, a couple things. What does he say in verse 15? What God can deliver? He's forgotten the God that just revealed the mystery. He has already forgotten this God who has set himself up, who has is the power to establish kings and rulers in verse chapter 2, verse 21, right? He's forgotten the God who has given him the revelation of everything, the, the, the God who gave him the, the vision that he was the head of gold. And now he's making this golden statue, and he's already forgotten this God who has the power to save. And that's because in chapter 2, God had wisdom. God God showed His immense knowledge. In this chapter, He will show His power. That is a God worth worshiping. So notice in verse 16, their response. 
their response to him. O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. Now, most of my research has said that when, they say, when they're saying this, that the Aramaic is actually putting it in a way that's somewhat discourteous. That they're actually beginning to talk down to the king a little bit to say, who are you to ask us about which God we will worship? Which God we will praise? Verse 17 goes on. And they, what they continue to say is, If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. Notice, they do not mention their God by name. They just simply say, our God. They're not naming this God yet. And yet, Nebuchadnezzar has had an experience about it before. Now, again, I've said this quite a bit because I think it's important that the name of God will not be mentioned until chapter 9. Until chapter 9. Because what Daniel is trying to do up all the way until this point is describe his activity, is to describe his wisdom, is to describe his power without yet naming him. Because Nebuchadnezzar has not yet acknowledged him. But the kings have still continued to push against him. And so, what they begin to say is, they affirm the fact that they have a God that is able to deliver them. But what do they say in chapter 18, or verse 18? But if not... But if not, be it known to you, O king, we will not serve your gods. What did we say last week about the prayer that Daniel uh, offered up, asking for mercy? He did not presume that God would answer his prayer. God could have let him die. The presumption was not that just because they were good enough, just because they prayed, just because they spoke to God, that he would actually begin to answer them just because they were nice about it. They were a people that were in punishment. They were in exile. They were carried into Babylon for a reason. They were being punished. And they asked for mercy from God. Not basing it off of this idea that if they were just good enough, He would have to answer. They presume in knowing that God can do whatever He wants. And it's still for His glory and His goodness and His faithfulness. Even if that is at the expense of their life. Now, what I think that... uh, I, I don't, again, this maybe is my speculation, so take it or leave it. But I wonder if part of the reason they say, but we don't care what he does, whether he, he, he has the power to save us, but we don't care what he does. I, I wonder if part of the reason that they say this is because they actually acknowledge the fact that they, they, they would deserve it anyways. That actually, even if God didn't save them, it was... They, they've fallen short. They've worshipped other idols. They came from a place because of their idolatry, their unfaithfulness. I wonder if part of their, their, their uh, surrender to this idea that God might not intervene is because even if He doesn't, His justice will still be served. Now, the other idea to this, which is the most popular and I think is accurate as well, is that they knew that regardless of what God did, it was for His purpose, His glory, His goodness. His plan. And that if they died in the fire, it would still accomplish everything that God desired to do. And what do we find out in chapter 12? They'll be raised again. There's a resurrection coming. So that even if the fire turns them into dust, God has the power to breathe life into that dirt again to make them men. What we begin to see, even in Daniel, is a new idea of the resurrection and the resurrection power as they begin to look forward to it in the future when God will intervene again. You know, it reminds me of Hebrews uh, 11 when he's talking about Abraham. 
And he, and he said that Abraham's faithfulness was, was, so, was so much that he was willing to sacrifice his son because, not because he believed that God would, you know, was going to change his mind and not use his family for his lineage again, but because he believed that if he was faithful to God, that God had the power to raise, his, raise Isaac again. That I, that, I think, is a part of what we're beginning to see. So there's two parts of this. One, they are beginning to see that the justice of God, they would still deserve it. They would still deserve it. And yet, because of the faithfulness of God, they would still be raised again. Now, this is a very challenging thing that I think we don't always confront within our own Christian life. The justice of God. Because when we are in the most uncomfortable places of our life, when we're really suffering, we're really hurting, when, all, when we're really looking for an answer of God, we forget that first and foremost, what we deserve is silence. What we deserve is silence. What grace reminds us is that God speaks. What we deserve is silence. And if we do not come to God first as beggars, beginning to acknowledge the fact that sin has corrupted our hearts, that it has separated us from Him, and yet He has done an amazing thing. But if we would just look at the cross and the resurrection, we would begin to first see more than anything else that God cares. When we begin to see that, we would begin to see the fact that no matter what happens to our life, no matter what happens, we don't deserve anything that God gives us. And that should make everything else so much more beautiful of what God does give us. Because He's given us a relationship. He's given us grace. And He's given us a, 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 His presence, the Holy Spirit living inside of us. That's changing us. That's allowing us to live in faithfulness and gentleness and peace and self-control and love. He's enabling the things that we always pushed against. So, when you are in your trials, when you are in your suffering... One of the things that will most help you through those things is first remembering that God, you don't deserve God to listen to you. Only because, that only becomes encouraging because He does. Because He absolutely has. Because in your moments of trial and uncomfortability, we are reminded through the cross and the resurrection that none of, nothing that we experience is because God does not care. That through the action, the person, the work of Jesus, we can actually have a relationship with God. So no matter whether we are thrown into the fire or not, whether He delivers us or not, there's a resurrection coming. There's a resurrection coming. And He will breathe life into that dust again. Remember, we talked about this a little bit. Death means nothing to us as Christians anymore. Because death can take nothing that God will not give back. And perhaps God is using our worst trial to bring about His greatest glory, our, our greatest weakness to, show, to exhibit and to show His greatest strength. I think that's what we're beginning to see within the midst of this story. What happens... Um, well, I'll leave it there. So, questions for you guys about this, this section thus far, 8 through 18. Yeah. Yes. Yes. So the question is, um, what we talked about last time is when they went to God in prayer, they were using their Jewish names, um, but in this chapter they're using their Aramaic names. Why is that? I don't know. 
<laughs> I don't know. Yeah, that's a, it's a thing that, you know, most, the, most of the, the research that I've read is they just, they're not quite sure why the change is made. Um, which is even, even in the last chapter, you know, it, it's absolutely speculation to believe that Daniel used those names in the midst of the prayer. But I think it's a beautiful picture. If I mean, it, make, it would make sense to me that Daniel's within that moment was saying, um, we will, like, that he was using their names in a way to describe the fact that they needed the help of God, that they needed, you know, his, his grace in the matter. Um, now, why, why they switched back in this one, I'm not sure. It's, perhaps it's because... Um, it's not Daniel who's using these names, but actually the Babylonians, um, in the sense that they're the ones referring to them. And they're trying to refer to them as people labeled by their gods. And yet, that's not, what we're, that's not what's going to actually happen. Yeah. Good question. Anything else? Elijah? Yeah. Yes. Is he not putting himself on the same level as God? Uh, absolutely, uh, or at least, uh, or at least of what he believes the gods on his behalf have enabled him to do. Um, I, but absolutely, yeah. I think part of what he's seeing is a challenge to his own power, in addition to those that he felt backed him, and uh, that's going to be torn down. Yeah. Uh, I didn't repeat the question. I always forget to. He said. Uh, whether that God, when in verse 15, when, when it says, um, who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Is he equating himself with God? And I think that the answer is, is well, I should say, yes, in the sense that he believes he has the absolute backing of all the gods, the pantheon of gods. Probably no in that he considers himself one. I will say that. Only because the research that I've done says that there's no evidence of a Mesopotamian king ever... Um, distinguishing himself as divine. Uh, but they did, they believed that the backing of the gods and the, the favor of the gods was incredibly important. So, anything else? Cool. All right. Well, let's go to this final part Daniel 3 19 through 27. It says this, Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to, to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and to cast them into the burning fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning fiery furnace. Now remember all those things, okay? All those things they were wearing. Because the king's order was urgent... And the furnace overheated. The flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king, he answered and said, But I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt, and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning, fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire, and the the satraps and the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. 
The hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. No smell of fire had come upon them. So in verse 19, when King Nebuchadnezzar finds out that these men are not going to bow to this thing, it literally says that the image of his face completely changed. That he went from a man calm, uh, what we think, calm, to one so So mad, so angry, so burdened by the fact that these three Jewish men were becoming obstinate. That they wouldn't allow themselves to to bow, even at the threat of death. And um, what he also says is because of this, right, he's going to throw them in the furnace and that they were going to heat it seven times more. Seven times more. Now seven is a pretty important number in Scripture in general. I don't know if it's necessarily being used um, in this capacity, but seven often represents the idea, like symbolically, of completion. So if you think of like the seven-day creation, right? He rested on the seventh day. So seven often is associated with that. When you get to the book of Revelation, I would say that's very specifically so. That the numbers within, throughout the book of Revelation, um, we kind of talked about this, that you have to take those, much of the images and numbers within the book of Revelation, not literally, uh, but symbolically, and that they must not be measured, but weighed, Right? That is not about the detail of the seven, but what exactly that seven represents. And so, um, what is specifically is going on, even within this, this part, is uh, Nebuchadnezzar is heeding this thing um, to perhaps what he's trying to, what Daniel's trying to say is to completion, to, to, the, to the point of just blazing heat. It could be no hotter, which is perhaps why these men, when they come to finally throw the men in, the king's men, when they throw the men in, they die. They die almost instantaneously. Um, which is part of the, uh, verse 20 through 22, um, we begin to see that these, these men, I mean, the king, again, we're talking about the power of God. The king takes some of his, the, the mightiest men that he has, these, these personal soldiers, and he has them bind them so that they cannot get out. And he, they throw them into the furnace and they die. Now, this is important. Don't miss this. The king's men die. Do you hear the difference? The three men decided that they would not obey this king's command, and God saved them. The men who did obey that king's command died. And what we begin to see is, again, this juxtaposition of the power of God versus the false gods of Babylon, who could not even save these three men just being obedient to the king. Which king will we serve? Which king do we believe brings life? Let's get rid of the idols. Get rid of the idols. Because there's one king that can deliver us from the fire. Um, verse 27. Notice that in verse 27, all of those powerful men, it says the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors, they gathered together. And they saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their head was not singed. Uh, their coats were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. All of those powerful men gathered around. All of those, all, every single person that just bowed to the statue began to see now these people and see that they had made it through this blazing hot fire. And it listed off all of their garments, and then it comes back, and it makes it, it's, it's making a specific gesture here. It's saying not one part of them was changed. That when God was looking after these men, He didn't let one part of them be damaged, be changed at any capacity. 
So that when these other men become, they come into the presence of these three Jewish men, they begin to see a power of a God who's so much bigger and better than the one that they just bowed to. Don't miss that. What I also want to, I want to point us to Revelation 1 uh, a little bit. Because this is also important. So go to Revelation 1, 4 through 16. Again, the book of Daniel really is a framework for our interpretation of Revelation. You can, I, there's, it's an impossibility to know what Revelation says without first knowing what Daniel says. Okay? I want to read this for you. It says, John to the seven churches that are in Asia. Grace to you and peace from Him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before His throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of kings on earth. To Him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by His blood and made us a kingdom, priest to His God and Father, to Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, He is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of Him. Even so, Amen. I am the Alpha and Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come. Now listen to this. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation, in the kingdom, in the patient endurance, they are enduring hardship. Revelation was written during the emperor Domitian's reign, and he was a terrible emperor, so much so that Rome tried to exterminate the memory of him. They are suffering. This is a guy who is putting to death Christians as much as possible. This is what he says. That they are enduring the patient endurance that are in in Jesus. And he was on this island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. This is what he says. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in the book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands was one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe, and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. What John is saying is that we're all in a furnace. But there's one with us, and he's like the son of the gods. And his name is Jesus And what we begin to see in the story, even as John reminds his readers of the story that we're in, of the fact that there's another guy in the furnace with him, is that regardless of what we go through, regardless of what season or trial you may be in, there is one with you. And whether he lets you be consumed by the flames, or he saves you and delivers you from them, he he will give you life. You will be resurrected. And those ashes will breathe life again. Daniel is painting a picture of the power, the immense magnitude of God's powerful hand. And Nebuchadnezzar's response is this, verse 28. 
Then Nebuchadnezzar came near the door of the burning fiery furnace. He declared Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire, and the satraps, the prefects, the governors, they see this, right? Verse 28, Nebuchadnezzar answers and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore I make a decree, any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid in ruins, for there is no other god who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. What happened in, our, in, in, the, in chapter 2? There was a decree that went out. You must interpret this dream. Or you will be torn limb from limb, right? And your house will be laid in ruins. And I said, we have to take the funniest translation, which is that he really says, you'll become a poop pill. Okay? And he says it again here, but he says it at the end. He says, these are truly people who are worshiping an amazing God. And anyone now, it's not just anybody, not, and it's not now that you just have to interpret the dream. Now, it's, if, if you even speak badly of this God, you will be torn limb from limb, and you will be made into a poop pill. Okay? This is the God of power. This is the God of power. And He's acting. And Nebuchadnezzar is beginning to realize it. And when we get to chapter 6, when Daniel gets thrown into the lion's den, and he gets delivered from it, we will see those people torn limb from limb and made into a poop pill. Our God is powerful. And He deserves our worship. And at any time we begin to exchange the truth about God for a lie and worship created things instead of the ones in which God desires of, instead of Himself, we have settled for far too little. And those things will never set truly satisfy. What did we talk about last, you know, a couple weeks ago? Augustine says it the best way. That any time we try to worship a created thing instead of the real one, it's like a starving man licking a picture of a piece of bread, hoping it will satisfy his hunger. We serve and worship the living God. And he desires to bring life into our story. That's what we have, that's what Daniel's showing. He's not just wise. He's powerful. So, questions with this. Questions with the end of this. Roberta. No, that's not a dumb question. I can tell you that. Yes, absolutely. Yep. Uh, her question was, um, does Nebuchadnezzar saying that nobody should talk anything against Israel's God, does that mean that now they are free to not have to worship and bow down to this other one? And absolutely, yeah. God, uh, Nebuchadnezzar has seen that there is a God who will deliver, <laughs> deliver them from his hands. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, he just refers to him as a son of the gods. Yeah, and what he and what only thing we know is it could have been it, it possibly could have been Jesus. Some some people believe it was Jesus actually, um, and some other people think it it was possibly just an angel. Um, but regardless, uh, God intervened within that situation, 
Um, and you know, we can't, we don't know the details about who that, the identity of that person outside of, it doesn't really matter because what their identity was, was a direct reflection and a response of the activity of God. And so anything, you know, anything that they were doing was ultimately, uh, it was representing the God that they were serving. Yeah. Yeah, they were bound when they came into the fire, but they so weren't when they that came out. Absolutely, yeah. We can go into hard things, but God can take the thing that bound us away. Absolutely. Yeah, anything else? Comments, questions? Yes. Yeah, perhaps they had time to think, yeah, about the fact that they were going to their death. Yeah, and it's hard to know exactly how much time because it, it would have taken time to heat the, heat the furnace, but I think what it also says is um, that actually the command was so uh, swift that that was part of why... Um, Part of why the men who, who even brought him into the furnace died. Yeah, because the king's order was urgent in verse 22. And so, uh, yeah, but we don't know exactly how long, you know, it would have taken to heat that thing. Um, but yeah, they, were, they knew what they were going into, for sure. I like another thing that, they, that is written in there. It says, and his attitude toward them changed. Mm. To me, he's just, I mean, he sees these things, but then he goes ahead and he... He does it again. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? And he like then from the last Daniel, chapter. To Daniel. Yeah. I mean, he's seeing all these. He isn't a fast learner. Yeah. <laughs> She's saying Nebuchadnezzar's not a fast learner. <laughs> but in fairness, none of us are. <laughs> right? How many times do we go back to our, to our, uh, our image, the thing that we see in the mirror? You know, how many times? But it's true. Yeah, exactly. Right? The fact that they were in, they were in exile is a reminder that they... Uh, they they went back too many times to the to the wrong place. Anything else? I do have a curious question. Yeah. Why do they say the instruments over and over and over? In oh, why do they say the instruments? And, yeah, like. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I think, you know, one of the things they also repeat a lot is uh, how he set it up. Um, if you notice, it says this. Uh, let's see. <laughs> I know, I should know, right? In verse 3, oh, oh, it starts actually in verse 2. He kind of repeats himself over and over again. Oh, I'm sorry, verse 1, it's, it's, it says, uh, He set it up on the plain of Dur in the province of Babylon. Then at the end of, of verse 2, had set up the, the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then again in, in verse 3, uh, the, the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And then at the end of that verse again, before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. He says that so many times. Why does he do that? Probably to emphasize the fact that this was a direct uh, act of Nebuchadnezzar to establish this image, to bring it up, and then create a... I mean, this was an event. You know, the, the reason that they had all the most important people come to this thing, and then they got all these instruments out, was ultimately they were making a statement about this, this idol. And 
Nebuchadnezzar, I would say, was even making a statement about his authority and his power to have everyone bow before it. Um, but I don't know, you know, we don't know exactly why they, they mentioned it. Yeah. You, you, you would have to think this was not a one-time event if he pulled it off. Oh, yeah. But he didn't pull it off. That's right. So the family just probably sat out there and kind of here and just rested. Yeah. But it they could have broken it down. It was going to be a place of worship. Yeah. Yeah. And perhaps, you know, perhaps after they decided not to bow down to this thing. I mean, they could have kept it. I mean, truthfully, they could have kept it, right? Because, again, they believe in the pantheon of gods. And so even though they're acknowledging that Israel's God is powerful, that doesn't necessarily mean that they are uh, negating the one that they were trying to bow down. So it's possible they kept it. It's possible that they threw it in the fire and created new stuff out of it because they realized that it wasn't that great to begin with. You know, we don't, we don't quite know. We do know that we probably have the base, though, which is helpful because um, a base like that can support a structure like that. Um, so at least they didn't destroy that, so we got some archaeological <laughs> evidence. Yeah. Anything else? Does, does it seem like all through Daniel, you're seeing Babylon and Satan and Shadrach and Daniel as being God? But, uh, Nebuchadnezzar is always trying to set up his kingdom, and kingdom mm. but he's always failing, and God. Along saying, this is the true so his question was, does Babylon represent a satanic symbol, essentially, that this is the, what Satan is using? Um, I would actually make the argument that Babylon probably represents humanity. Um, you know, if you think back of, of chapter 1, when, when he mentions the, the town of, um, when he mentions the town of what is it, Shinar, when he mentions the town of Shinar, and, we, and we're pulled back to that image of the, of the Tower of Babel, right, where that was, that was a set up, I think what actually Daniel's using is Babylon to remind ourselves that human, humanity does not possess as much power as we think we do. Now, I say that. Um, in addition to that, even the statue, right? The statue is, is, it calls it a unified piece. It's a unified statue. It's one man. And yet, it represents different kingdoms. Because ultimately, every kingdom of man is still representative of man. And um, what I, uh, most likely is probably happening is Daniel's using Babylon as really a, a window into our own life. But I will say this, that in, when we begin to enter into chapter 9 and 10 and 11 and within that, uh, mostly 9 and 10, uh, we do see that there are some spiritual things happening behind the scenes. And, we, and that Babylon, and especially, I mean, every, ultimately every human kingdom is being influenced in a spiritual way uh, when we begin to look at the, uh, the princes, um, and we'll get to that obviously later on. But. So the answer is probably yes, but not so explicitly. Uh, I wouldn't say Babylon's explicitly um, a representative of Satan. I think that's probably representative of humanity, but Satan is uh, an influence in the life of humanity. So, anything else? What was the name of the archaeologist? His name was Opper, O-P-P-E-R. That's his last name. I don't remember his first name. Um, I do think Tremper Longman mentions him. If not, I know for sure Stephen Miller does. Um, he writes a commentary called, um, what's it called? New American Bible Commentary, I believe. Um, and then also, um, Craig Keener is another person who mentions them. So there's a couple people who, who talk about it a little bit. Anything else? Cool. All right. 
Well, guys, I'd love to pray for you, and then we'll call it a night. All right? I'll have you guys know, by the way, I came into this night with two pages. Last week I came in with six, and I still finished at the same time. So, wow. Anyways, let me pray for you. (laughs) Father God, we are so thankful for your goodness and grace. Lord, we pray that you would continue to help us see you, Father. To see your power, to see your wisdom. To see that you are involved in our story. And even though we deserve so much worse than what you've given us, God, we're so thankful that your grace has given us so much more. And Father, we pray, God, that we would have the attitude, the, uh, the, the, the worldview, God, the, the vision, to begin to see our lives as specifically for you, so that even in the midst of our trial, even if it means that you don't deliver us in the way that we thought, that we would have a great future of the moment where you deliver us and deliver everybody, God, through resurrection. Father, we pray that we would begin to see that you are with us in the trial, in the furnace. Father, that you have revealed yourself in the person and work of Jesus, that we see the Son of God, that we see Him standing with us every single day, and God, that you would continue to use your Holy Spirit to change us, to make us worshipers, and worshipers simply only of you. God, teach us what it looks like to be seen as a worshiper of you. God, allow us to participate in everything that you called us to in a church like this, that provides us the safe space to truly just abandon ourselves. God, that's what we're after. And I pray that this class and just the study of the Word of God would continue to lead us into a further obedience and a trust in you that, that is willing to say, even if you don't, we trust you. Lord, we love you. And it's in your Son's name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thanks again for checking out this podcast. We hope this teaching helped you to discover completeness in Jesus and encourages you to help others do the same. For more resources or to learn about Christ Church in general, visit us online at cco.church.